Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Renee Evans. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com. worship I just had this sense like as preachers you say you know like you're carrying the word or you're carrying the message and I just felt the Holy Spirit say like you're carrying the person I just feel that the Holy Spirit is in this room so strongly tonight PowerPoint presentation and everything. (laughs) But I got a feeling that the Holy Spirit doesn't really care. (laughs) I was on my knees in worship, like assuming the position, you know, Like anyone who's grown up in revival culture, just assume the position, right, (laughs) to receive. And it felt like the Lord said, turn your hands over, because I'm taking my church from receiving to yielding. (laughs) To get back to the simplicity And to say, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm sick of being filled. I want to be empty. I want to be empty. I don't want to get to heaven full. I've been watching hours of revival history meetings getting ready for tonight. That was my first mistake. (laughs) Thank you. And I just was watching as these men and women over and over and over again, they weren't any different from you and I. We tend to look at these great moves of God and these great men and women of God and we put them up on this pedestal. But the only one that should be on our pedestal is the Holy Spirit. And we're not so different. In fact, some of us have it a lot easier than they did. But you know what seems to be a common denominator among revivalists in history is they all broke. They all got to a point where they broke. (laughs) I don't want pretty church. 
like the Lord is asking, are we ready? Are we ready to lay down our good ideas? Are we ready to lay down our carefully constructed Christian reputations? Are we ready to care about how many followers Jesus had and not our Instagram? Are we ready? I was was studying the life of Catherine Coleman. She would pace back and forth. She wouldn't even come out on the stage until the Holy Spirit was there. Sometimes hours. And the tens of thousands of people would wait. Because she said, I am utterly useless without the person of the Holy Spirit. Every great move of God came after a time in history that was filled with conflict, strife, hopelessness, where the world was turned upside down from the Great Depression, plagues, the wars, out of those places came great and powerful moves of God. And I don't just say this for hype, but friends, we are in that day and that time that if we allow it, a move of God is coming that we have never seen before. A move of God is coming, but we need to learn how to lay down. so excited for the day when consumer Christianity dies. So excited for the day that we stop coming to church to warm up a seat and to check it off our to-do list. He's so worth it. He's so worth it. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you, Holy Don't feel uncomfortable by the silence. I'm not. (laughs) I'm just waiting for him. Because I have okay words. Pretty epic PowerPoint presentation. But (laughs) 
gosh, I don't want to move when he's not moving. I watched video after video of people getting up completely healed. Not because anyone laid hands on them, but because the presence of God was in the room. A four-year-old boy who had never walked or ran from muscular dystrophy ran across the stage. Did you hear that? I don't know about you, but I have a three-year-old boy that I can't get stop running. Could you imagine watching your boy run for the first time at four years old because he's been bound in a wheelchair? That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. feel like there's someone and you have um, like a fused disc in your spine. I just feel like the Lord is touching you. I feel like people's hearing is going to open up tonight. Tinnitus is going to leave in the name of Jesus. Pay attention to your bodies tonight. You don't need anyone to lay hands on you. I love what Joaquin says. God is good at his job and he needs less help than we think he does. (laughs) I knew I should have worn waterproof mascara. Break me. Break me, God. I don't want to be useful to this world if I'm useless to heaven. just take a couple more minutes to tell him that we love him.
you love me like the shadow of the Holy Spirit. Overshadow us. Overshadow us, Lord. Wow. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event. You know, it's meant to be a lifestyle and a place that we live in. And not just on Saturdays and Sundays. When we talk about revival, we don't want revival for the sake of revival. We don't want revival so our church, denomination, city can become famous. We want revival because when it comes, he comes. We want revival because it drives us into intimacy with the Father. We want revival to make Jesus' name famous. We don't want it because it's the buzzword or the cool charismatic and hip Pentecostal thing to want. We want it because truly it's the only thing that is going to make earth look like heaven. It's the only thing. I have a whole overview of the last message on revival history. But I'm just going to say it's on a podcast or somewhere that you can find. (laughs) Can I encourage you to go home and to study the great moves of God? Can I implore you as believers to know your inheritance? To know what people laid their lives down for that you now walk in.
I don't know what's happening. might take a few Holy Spirit breaks tonight. Are you okay with that? I don't know how we can read and study about Christian history and not just be so overcome with his goodness and gratitude. Come rest on us. Come rest on us. Fire and wind. Come and do it again. I wish I could sing right now. <laughs> I want the Holy Spirit to stay. <laughs> I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I mean, I've got so many notes, but we're just going to jump in, okay? As with last time, there's just not enough time, and especially now, there's definitely not enough time to cover all of the incredible moves, revivals and revivalists that have gone before us. So I just chose my favorites. I'm going to start with this lady right here. Amy Temple McPherson. She's my favorite revivalist. Although, after watching hours and hours of Catherine Coleman, she's a really close second. All right, let me tell you a little bit about this lady. It's my hopes that as we look at these people's lives and even the humble beginnings that they come from, that you realize that they're no different than you and I. They grew up in a different time and maybe a different place, but for the most part, most of them didn't grow up with this gift upon their life that just couldn't wait to get out. Most of them had to become broken so that God would fill them. And friends, if he can do it for them, he can do it for us. Amen. Okay. Babe, stop texting me. look like I need more distraction. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Amy Semple grew up in Canada. So for all you Canadians out there, she's one of yours. She grew up um, with her mother as part of the Salvation Army. And so she grew up knowing about God and knowing about Jesus and being taken to meetings held at Salvation Army camps. And um, 
It was a very rambunctious little girl, got into a lot of trouble at school. I think this is why I like her so much. Um, <laughs> and she argued the case of evolution that went even to the point of writing and getting different scholars to engage in a debate around evolution because she decided that evolution was right. But then she encountered Jesus. But God. Anyone ever heard of the term flirt to convert? Yeah? No? Okay. This lady right here started attending some meetings um, with her dad, some revival meetings, with the main speaker being a man named Robert Semple. And she wasn't there for the Holy Ghost. She was there because she had a crush on a boy. And he happened to be the preacher. <laughs> so she came back night after night after night. And eventually, she began to see that the people in the room were carrying something that she wasn't. And so she began to ask God. said, all these people are speaking in tongues and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so she started pursuing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And for five days... In a house, she didn't leave, she fasted and she prayed. And then on the morning of the fifth day, she was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues. She married Robert Semple, this lovely gentleman right over here. And he became her Bible teacher. And so eventually they moved as missionaries to China. And when she became pregnant, Robert contracted malaria, ended up at ended up dying and passing away, leaving her to give birth to her daughter in China with no friends, no family, no one on the mission field on her own with not enough money to get back home. Miraculous thing happened where two little praying grandmas, like I said, never underestimate praying grandmas, were woken up in the middle of the night and the Lord told them to send a certain amount of money to Amy on the mission field and it was the exact amount of money she needed for a ticket for her and her daughter to make it back to America. When she got back, she ended up in New York, Rhode Island and she married this man right here, Mr. Ferguson. I mean, <laughs> McPherson, I'm like, not even there. And he wanted a quiet life. He wanted her to be a good housewife. And so she tried for a while. She had another child, a son. And it was during that time that she got appendicitis. And she was on her deathbed and she was praying. And she heard this voice said, will you preach? Will you preach? And at that time, you've got to remember, it wasn't common for women to preach. That was a man's job. And the voice said, if you preach, I will heal you. And so she said, yes. And immediately, she was healed. She grabbed her children. She left a note for her husband. She said, I've gone to preach the gospel. <laughs> Come join us. <laughs> she went from town to town to any place that would take her preaching the gospel. And at that point, that's really all she knew was the salvation message. And she would preach 
And this right here was her little car. You know, she was the first woman to cross the United States in a car. And she began taking a tent, pitching a tent, having these meetings where people were getting saved and people were getting healed, but her husband was not happy. And he said, let's go back and live our quiet life. That's what she said. <laughs> so she said, no. She said, not again will I deny the call of God on my life. So unfortunately, they did end up getting a divorce. And she went on with her mom and her kids, traveling all around America, preaching the gospel. She ended up in Los Angeles, where she rented a 3,500-seat Philharmonic Auditorium, where people waited hours upon hours to get into her meetings. The reason that I love this woman so much is because she dictated culture. She was the head and not the tail. And what do I mean by that? When she built her uh, Angelis Temple, her church, which was a 5,000-seat auditorium, she had 40 million visitors come in a seven-year period. Let's give you a little bit of context. That's the population of Australia times two. Came to that building in seven years. And Hollywood, the elite from Hollywood would come. Charlie Chaplin actually would build her stage sets for her. And they were very close friends. Marilyn Monroe would come. She would see Hollywood producers and directors. They would come to her meetings to get ideas on what to do in the movies. She wrote five operas. She would sing. She would have animals. She would have props. I mean, she made the gospel come alive. And more people visited her Sunday services than they would any of the leading blockbuster films that came out. This is perhaps my favorite thing that she did. She would rent the halftime show at boxing matches, much to the criticism of most Christians, because the people who used to attend boxing matches weren't really the nice people. And she would rent the halftime show. And she would have a sign that said, kick the devil, beat the devil. And she'd walk around and she would preach the gospel. And can I tell you, she saw drug cartel leaders, mob leaders, repenting and crying in their seats receiving salvation. She didn't wait for the world to come to her. She went to the world and took the gospel message. And as a result, she was the famous per most famous person in Los Angeles in her time. She dictated culture. What she did, the world copied. Everyone said, what makes you so popular? Why are you so famous? And she said, it's because I preach the great I am and not the great I was. She wasn't just the first woman to own a Christian radio station. She was the first Christian to own a radio station. 
And just before her death, she actually was um, in negotiations to get an experimental TV channel, which wasn't around. She was on the precipice of everything. She was on the precipice of culture. She moved in incredible signs and wonders. She was so sweet. Like her, she smiled all the time, and she would smile while telling you that you're a sinner. And for some reason, <laughs> people loved her, even though she would call out their junk. And they would come, and they would repent and receive salvation. She moved in such great healing anointing that she had something called the stretcher day. Now, the stretcher day, let me see if I got a picture of this for you. I don't. Sorry. These are some of her meetings right here. They fed 1.5 million people throughout the Great Depression. More than any government organization. This is one of her buildings and the people lining up to get food. There's some more people. This is a fun one. <laughs> Revival is not clean. <laughs> but she would have these stretcher days where they would bring people in on stretches, and she would go around laying her hands on every single one of them with a huge success rate of people getting healed through her ministry. She then began to do something called Ambulance Day for those people who were too sick to come and sit in a service. And just be, when she would make the announcement, within a couple of days, all the ambulances in the Los Angeles area would get booked. Because people would book them to go to her church. And she would stand out in the street. And as they went past, she would lay their hands on the ambulances. And people would get radically healed. She knew how to rub shoulders with the most influential, the richest, the most famous people. Yet every single day, she walked with the broken and the poor. I have a video that I want to play for you. It gives you a good indication of her personality. Good. We had some technical difficulties later, so we should just all give it up for Anastasia up the back there, who made this happen. Drifting away from the faith of your fathers. You're drifting away from prayer, drifting away from the Bible reading, drifting away from the family altar, and only ruin and a heartbreak and a home break lay in the direction of backsliding. I am coming out to help bring you back if I can to the fold. Give me a burden for souls, Lord. Give me a love for the lost. Let my heart bleed as I own, Lord. Give me a burden for soul. 
That's just a good prayer right there. Amen. Lord, give me a burden for souls. Give me a heart for the lost and a burden for souls. I love it. Do not have a lot of time. This guy's fun. He looks so sweet, doesn't he? This is William Branham. He grew up dirt poor. Like, when they say not even a shirt on his back, when he was growing up going to school, he didn't have a shirt. Someone gave him a coat, and so he would wear that coat, safety pinned together with no shirt on underneath, even in the middle of summer. His teacher would be like, take off your coat. And he's like, no, because he didn't have any shirt on underneath. His mother was 15 years old when she gave birth to him in a cabin in the middle of nowhere. And multiple people who were at the birth have the same account that this light came into the window and came into the cabin and hovered above this child when he was born. This is the kind of man who is a rarity in the fact that it wasn't so much that the gifts flowed through him, but the gifts were resident in him. He had the most insane, crazy gift of the word of knowledge. And it wasn't just when he wanted to, it was all the time. You could meet him on the street and he could tell you what you had for breakfast. He could tell you what your childhood was like. He knew everything about you. As a result of the word of knowledge gift, he had one of the most insane healing ministries of his time. He had a lot of mystical encounters, multiple encounters where he would hear the audible voice of the Lord and the wind that would shake the trees around him. And one time it said to him, do not defile your body, do not smoke, do not drink, and do not be promiscuous. Now, he didn't grow up in a Christian home, and so when he was like, I think it was 12, his dad offered him some whiskey, which is just a bit crazy, but he said no, and they would all make fun of him. And when his friends at school would offer him a cigarette and he said no, they would all make fun of him. He really was the black sheep, but he had heard an audible voice, and he knew that he had to obey that voice at all costs, and he did. After um, almost dying, he heard again this voice and ended up attending a Baptist church where he was born again. Uh, way to go, Baptist church. I love it. Six months after he got saved, he became an ordained minister. Scary. <laughs> when he began to embrace Pentecostalism in the 40s, some would go on to regard him as the initiator of the healing revivals that took place in the 40s and the 50s. And Christian writer John Crowder described the period of revivals as the most extensive public display of miraculous power in modern history. This is, this is the home he was born in. That's so wild to me that he was born there. 
This is him as a young creature. Can anyone recognize, Shane, don't answer. Can, any, can anyone recognize this man down here in the corner? Oral Roberts, yes. He was part of his gang of revivalists. His, uh, his meetings were some of the largest religious meetings in American cities. Reports of 1,500 converts, not attenders, converts in one meeting were normal. Historians name his June 1946 St. Louis meeting as the inauguration of the healing revival period. Sometimes he would pray up to 4,000 people at a time. They would, they would line up and he would lay hands and pray for up to 4,000 people. He had this unusual manifestation coupled with the word of knowledge. When he touched someone's hand, sometimes it would break out in a rash and he would immediately know that person's sickness, pray for them, and then they would get healed. And he would know that if the rash left his hand, that they would be healed. He had almost a 100% success rate in praying for the sick and them getting healed. As you can imagine, someone with that kind of anointing quickly became in demand. And so his meetings grew, and they grew from up to, up to 25,000 people per meeting. 28 different states across the nation would come to his meetings. And Branham's meetings were interracial from conception, even holding interracial meetings in the South. In the southern states, receiving much backlash, he continued to preach unity and remained dedicated to ministering to both races and bridging the racial divide of his day. Here's a really unusual manifestation that would happen that was often seen in photographs that were taken of him when he was preaching. And this is him just sitting down, waiting to get up while the worship is on. But this light would come and just hover above his head. So many pictures. Like, these are just two, but so many pictures of this light just being present as he ministered. And he said it was the angel of the Lord that was by him that was healing people. One of the things I want to I want to focus on is this guy had a great team around him. FF F. Bosworth, Gordon Lindsay. Gordon Lindsay was a um, he came on as his campaign manager, but he was a Bible man, and many of you know his name. They still have a a great um, school up in Dallas, I believe it is, not too far away from here. And um, just a great theologian. And he would often get up and preach the word. And then Branham would get up, say a few things, and then move in signs and wonders. And the beautiful thing about this was that they knew their lane and they knew their gifting. And they stayed in it. Branham didn't try to be a teacher of theology. And Gordon Lindsay didn't try to move in the miraculous but they knew each had something that the other didn't have. And so they partnered together to bring a holistic meeting of the word and of power. And they traveled together all over the United States 
and even into Europe and just seeing tens of thousands of people being healed. At every meeting they went to, people were getting healed. At the height of his healing campaigns, he almost died due to exhaustion. He didn't know when to rest. He would pray for every sick person, and as a result, would often be carried off the stage from exhaustion. Sometimes he was on stage, and other people had to come up and hold his hand and place it on people because he was so exhausted. He couldn't even lift his hands anymore. But he knew how far and wide those people had traveled to be at that meeting, and he had compassion on them. And so he would sit while other people lifted his hand to put it on the sick people, and they would be healed. Describing Branham's method, Bosworth said, he does not begin to pray for healing of the afflicted in the body, in the healing line each night until God anoints him for the operation of the gift. And until he is conscious of the presence of the angel of the Lord on the platform with him. Without this consciousness, he seems to be perfectly helpless. Unfortunately, he didn't end well. He, he left a great legacy, but there are some things that um, can be learnt from his life. He began to split off from this group due to different reasons, and, and then he began to engage in uh, theological subjects that were beyond his comprehension, that were really beyond his gifting. And so he moved into this lane of becoming a teacher, and he kind of got off track, not kind of, a lot, got off track with some of the revelation that he was getting. And unfortunately, he didn't end well. He still ran his race in the first part of his life really well. But unfortunately, when he broke away from community, when he became a lone ranger, when he became the man, the anointed one, and didn't need the giftings and the talents of the people around him, he was led astray. Can I tell you how important it is for us to stay in our lanes? Does that mean we can't try things? No, not at all. But let's not pretend to be experts on things that we're not. It's okay to say we don't know. Being a worship leader to me, super glamorous. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, man, I want to do that. But it is not my lane. <laughs> you might regret that, Dylan. It's not my lane. I'm not trying to be it because I'm not gifted in it. And it's okay. Praise God, we have people, an abundance of people who are gifted in that. But each of your calling is meant to look unique and it's meant to look different and it fits you perfectly. The calling of God is not a one-size-fits-all. There are as many callings as there are people. Do what you're good at. 
Do what God has gifted you to do. And can I encourage you to find community? Can I encourage you to fill in your weak places? Because we've all got weak places. We all got stuff that isn't quite our gifting. It's not our strength. But praise God for the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Praise God. This is where I might get a little bit messy again. Oh, I just feel like, you know, I just, oh, I just love this woman. Wow. She's amazing. This was the woman who would say every day, I believe in miracles because I believe in God. She was born to a Presbyterian mother and a Baptist father, and she would take turns going to church with each of them. And at 14, at the Presbyterian church, she had her first encounter with the Holy Spirit, where she began shaking, and she had no idea what was happening because she had never heard the Holy Spirit preached. Never, had no idea, started shaking and weeping. And when they gave the invitation for salvation, she went up to the front and received Jesus. And that was her born-again moment. She was super quirky and awkward. There's hope for us all, <laughs> which I love. I love every time she preaches that she had this smile on her face, and I loved it because she was sassy. She was such a sassy preacher. I'm like, you're my spirit animal right there. <laughs> she was amazing. And I'm going to play a little clip for you soon, and you will see. But she started her ministry. She actually, um, this is the house that she was born in, and her standing out the front of her house. And this was her uh, and her dad. And her dad uh, actually became the mayor of her town. And they called them the dynamic duo wherever they would walk around. Um, and some attribute her intimacy with the father because of her relationship with her father here on earth. Some say it was so easy for her to trust and love the Holy Spirit because of the relationship she had with her dad. Dads. Dads. Your relationship, not just with your daughters, but with your children, is so important. You teach them what the face of God looks like. You teach them to trust God or not. I would almost go as far as to say, you determine the level of intimacy that your children will experience with the Father. No pressure. But it's an honor, really, and a privilege. You get to represent God well. And so many of you do, and do a beautiful job at it. Her ministry actually began as she was babysitting her sister and brother-in-law's uh, child when they were on touring the road. Her brother-in-law actually was an evangelist himself and would tour around the nation. So she went with them, watching the kids during the meetings until they couldn't afford to have her on payroll anymore. And so she was like, well, 
guess I'll just start my own preaching ministry. So she started going again to anyone who would have her preaching the gospel. And again, she was a woman. So still, in this day and age, that was not common to have a woman leading a meeting. She ended up uh, in Denver, Colorado. This is her church right here that she built. She had 2,000 people who attended this church, which back in the day would have been a mega church. Um, and so many people came to receive healing from her ministry. She ended up marrying a man. <laughs> Burroughs Waltrip. And she knew, she actually fainted in the middle of their wedding ceremony. That's a big indication that could be a red flag, by the way, ladies. Uh, she got back up after she'd fainted and continued on with the ceremony and married him. And um, they were driving to their honeymoon. When she got out of the car, she went into a girlfriend's room or house and, and wept. Said, I've, I've made a mistake. I should never have married him. And she knew... She knew at that time that she had not been obedient to the Lord. He then went on to tell her that because she was a woman, she wasn't allowed to preach in her own church. Oh, man. That just makes me angry. So she ended up after she had an encounter with the God, which she would go on to say was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where she said, I've got nothing, God. I've got nothing, but whatever I have, it's yours. That was the moment that she became yielded to the Holy Spirit. She ended up divorcing her husband, and she kept preaching Sometimes there was one account where she was in the middle of preaching and when the pastor found out that she was divorced, he came up and took the microphone off her, apologized to his congregation and said, I'm sorry, we've had a divorced woman, woman preaching to you. Many churches closed their doors to her when they found out that she was divorced. But guess what? God didn't care. God didn't care, and she got up again. She was told no so many times that most of us would have given up with just half the no's that she received. But she didn't let that stop her. She cared more about the call of God on her life and being obedient to him than she did what man would say. And she kept preaching. And she kept preaching. I have a video here for you. It costs much, but it's worth the cost. It costs everything. If you really want to know the price, if you really want to know the price, I'll tell you. It'll cost you everything. 
Kuhlman died a long time ago. I know the day, I know the hour, I can go to the spot where Catherine Kuhlman died. But you see, for me, it was easy because I had nothing. I had nothing. Which leg, honey? It costs much. So many people would look at her ministry and her growing fame and want what she had. They didn't truly know what it cost to have what she had. And I think a big mistake that we can make sometimes is looking at the anointing on someone's life and assuming that there isn't a great cost that is attached to that. Because you will get ridiculed. You will get persecuted. But it's worth it. She used to say, God's not looking for silver vessels. God's not looking for golden vessels. What God wants is yielded vessels. We don't need to look perfect for him, friends. We don't need to. In fact, that's the farthest thing that he wants. He wants our yes and he wants our, our obedience. But when we say yes, we better know we better be prepared for the cost. Because that's why there's many people and only a few real revivalists. That's the one reason. It's not because God doesn't want to do through you what he did through them. It's not because he's holding back. It's not because he can't do it. Because there are very few people who truly count the cost and say yes anyway. I don't know about you, but I just want to get better at yielding. Can I be completely honest? There are probably things in my life that I haven't yet yielded to the Lord. There's probably some things that I want to have control over that I haven't given up yet. Probably some ideals that I have. I definitely have an independent nature that needs to yield. Oh, but I want to get there. I want to get there. And I want to keep going back day after day after day, saying, take more of me. Take more of me. Because it doesn't have to just be a few that make history. 
It doesn't have to be. Could you imagine, just close your eyes for me, could you imagine every single person in this room fully yielded to the Holy Spirit? Not caring what the person next to them thought of them. Being outrageously obedient, even to the point of foolishness. What does a whole company of people fully surrendered to God look like? I don't know, but I want to find out. I want to find out. There's one time that Catherine Coleman had a meeting. This is the people waiting to get into her meeting. She had a meeting in a hotel once, and um, the ushers were taking her through the industrial kitchen to get her into the place that she needed to be. She'd been in the green room spending time with the Lord. And she walked through that kitchen. But she didn't walk alone. She was carrying a person. And as she walked through a kitchen, the chefs and the dishwashers and the busboys, every single one of them fell out in the spirit. She didn't touch them. She didn't even pray. She was carrying a person. She had so allowed the Holy Spirit to overshadow her that where she went, he just leaked out. So many people would be healed in her meetings, getting up and walking out of their wheelchairs. Some who hadn't walked in decades. Benny Hinn was in Catherine Coleman's choir. Did you know that? I didn't know he was in her choir. I knew he'd been to some of her meetings. Joaquin told me that. And he studied her life, and the model of his services are very similar to her services. And I was telling Joaquin about a time that I went to a Benny Hinn conference and I was sitting on the front row, and I closed my eyes, and he was talking, like, a lot. It was a really long meeting. And you know when you just kind of, like, like, it felt good, but I was also really tired. And I'm just putting my hand in my head, and I felt this presence move. And so I began to experiment, and I could tell when Benny Hinn was on the same side of the platform that I was sitting in front of and when he'd moved to the other side. Not because of sound, not because my eyes were open, but the tangible presence of God that rested on that man. Think of him what you will. He's controversial, I know. But there is no doubt of the hundreds of thousands of people that have been healed and saved at his meetings. And can I tell you, I don't agree with all his methods. But the Holy Spirit is friends with that man. A reporter for a secular newspaper in 1948 wrote, at least 
Two million people have been healed by the power of God in Catherine Coleman meetings. It's pretty much the whole of the greater Austin region. I love that she didn't always pray for the sick, but what she did, she used her gift in the word of knowledge, and she taught people how to recognize the presence of God. She taught and trained people how to be aware that the Holy Spirit was moving. And so times she would just throw out in groups, she would throw out words of knowledge. She'd be like, someone over here is being healed of this and this and this. And she didn't go out and pray for them, but then sure enough, they get up, they're on stage testifying to what God has done. And of course, with that many miracles and with that kind of fame came a lot of skeptical people. But I want to show you this one because it's one of my favorites. I didn't think this is it. It should be starting at 24 I minutes know, and 36 seconds. Oh, I know how you feel about him. So do we. 18 years. The Englishman, every drop of blood okay. in his veins is English, I'll tell you. You can stop. This is not On correct. top of that Presbyterian. <laughs> okay, I'll just tell you. I'll just give you the cliff notes. So there was a man, and he was a scientist, and he was there, and she said, who are you, and what do you do? And he's like, well, that doesn't matter. She's like, yes, it does. Who are you, and what do you do? And he says, well, I don't think that matters. He's, she's like, you are a scientist, and the two hardest people to get saved are doctors and scientists. And he said, she said, what happened to you? And he said, you called out a word of knowledge about someone being healed in this area, and I just got back from the doctor, and he told me that the nerve endings in my ears were completely dead, and I couldn't even be fitted for hearing aids because it was pointless. He said, so I came, and you pointed in this area, and I, my ears completely opened up, and I, can heal, I got healed, and I can hear again. <laughs> and she was like, did you come to get healed? And he was like, no. She's like, did you believe that you would get healed? And he said, no. He's like, I came a skeptic. And she's like, friends, this is the mercy of God. This is the mercy of God. That it wasn't just believers who went to her meetings and got healed. It was non-believers everywhere who went. And not because their faith was joined to hers. Most of them didn't even have the faith to believe in miracles. But Holy Spirit doesn't care. Holy Spirit has enough faith for all of you. All of y'all. <laughs> he doesn't care if it's a believer or a non-believer. He just cares that people are being touched by God and hearts are being drawn to him. These are her meetings. I don't have time to go into everything else. I was going to talk about the Jesus people movement. Part three. <laughs> but this guy is my favorite. Well, my guy favorite. And I didn't even get to him. But anyway, let's just end by playing 
a little bit. I'm not going to give you any of the backstory of his life. I would just say that he had two million people at a time sometimes attending his meetings. Over a million attended in South Korea, and many, many were born again. He said, my job is simply to present Christ to people whose hearts God has already prepared. In the height of the Cold War, he took the gospel to the Soviet Union. He used radio and TV to spread the gospel. And he went on every single main TV talk show and late night show. They were just baffled by this man. He met with every sitting president since Truman. That's 13 presidents. Ronald Reagan said of Billy Graham, it is because of this man that I pray on a daily basis. He was the confidant to many world leaders, and everybody loved him, and he truly could say, follow me as I follow Christ. He said, it's my purpose on this earth to win as many people to Christ as possible. In 2007, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association estimated that he had preached the gospel to more than 215 million people. In more than 185 countries and territories. I love this man. Someone was just telling me the other day that he wouldn't get in the elevator with a woman alone. He was so above reproach in his character. He ran his race so well. And I'm not sure if I'm more impressed with him or if I'm more impressed with his wife. <laughs> Ruth Graham raised five children, sometimes seven months at a time on her own. And every single one of her children said, I never once heard my mother complain. <laughs> oh. <laughs> a little snapshot some of his crusades you know one of the reasons that I loved this man as well is he never strayed from his call he was an evangelist and it didn't matter if he was talking to a late night TV host or a president or hundreds of thousands of people, he preached the gospel wherever he went. I personally love him. My grandparents were um, involved in some of his crusades in Australia. They'd help pray for people who had received salvation. But I loved it because he had a plan and a purpose with all his meetings to get every person who received salvation plugged into a local church. Okay, I know we're over time by three minutes. Hang with me. Let's just try our last video, can we? Just one more. Young Billy Graham hailed another Billy Sunday. Reverend Billy Graham, one of the most inspirational spiritual leaders in the 20th century. We need you, we love you. Thank you for coming, Billy Graham. Would you welcome? 
creator, evangelist, author, educator, Dr. Billy Graham. Our recipient, the man who honors us by being here today. What is your purpose? Go into the whole world and proclaim this message. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Shall make you free. As I look back over my life, it's full of surprises. I never thought I would become friends with people in different countries all over the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I want us to look at the cross tonight. I see how God's hand guided me. I began preaching many years ago. It is not with any thoughts that I'd be preaching to large audiences. Come to the cross. His gospel is for everyone. God has done this. Christ is alive. In modern America today, there is a vacuum of the soul. Our country's in great need of a spiritual awakening. Well, there have been times that I've wept as I've gone from city to city and I've seen how far People have wandered from God. Of all the things that I've seen and heard, there's only one message that can change people's lives and hearts. There is a way if you come by the way of the cross. The cross, the cross. I want to tell people about the meaning of the cross. Not the cross that hangs on a wall or around someone's neck. We receive our freedom purchased by the ransom at the cross. But the real cross of Christ. The cross expresses the great love of God for man. It's scarred and bloodstained. His was a rugged cross. His real purpose for coming was to die. I know that many will react to this message, but it is the truth. And with all my heart, I want to leave you with the truth. God says, I love you. I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. He loves you, willing to forgive you of all your sins. Reinhard Bonnke as well, another great evangelist. He went home to be with the Lord last year. I have this question in my heart. I'm like, God, who are the next ones? Who are the next ones? Who are the people in our generation? If you're alive today, you're in this generation. Who are the people of this generation who are going to say yes? Who's going to be the next Billy Graham, the next Catherine Coleman? Who is going to pay the price? I don't want to just read about revivals. I don't want to just study the lives of revivalists. I want to live in a revival. I want to be a revivalist. I want God to use us. Because I tell you, I feel such a stirring 
for what God is about to do. And the crazier the world gets around us, the more excited I become. I tell you what, it actually stirs my faith for what is coming. My faith is so stirred for what God wants to do, and I don't want to just sit on the sidelines. Holding on to my ideals, holding on to the way I think Christianity should look, holding on to control. I want to be a yielded vessel. I want to carry a person. I want to carry the Holy Spirit. I want people to fall out in the restaurant when I go to eat. <laughs> I dream about that happening. I dream about what it would look like literally if the roof opened up and it started raining in here. I dream of the glory cloud like Azusa Street where kids would play hide and seek because it was so thick and tangible. In order to see it, we got to be thinking about it. we got to be dreaming about it. Because God doesn't just want it in history books. He wants it now and he wants it today. But all he needs is yielded vessels. Amen. Yeah. I'm going to invite the team to come back up. Come, Holy Spirit. The greatest sermon that ever preached. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I'm going to get the team to play a song. We sung it in worship. It talks about being at the feet of Jesus and giving him a lifetime worth of worship. And I don't know about you, but I'm just ready to get rid of the things that are holding me back from having more of him. Just ready. Man, what he has to offer us is so much more appealing than what this world has to offer us. It's not even a fair competition. If I find within me something that this world cannot satisfy, then I know that I was born for another place. C.S. Lewis said it way more eloquently than that. But there is something here, there is something within us that no matter how much you search and no matter how much you try, nothing in this world will satisfy you. 
no marriage, no family, no children. Do we love those things? Do we hold them so dear and precious? Yes. But there's even more. God has to come first. God has to come first. Good timing. I don't want to get distracted by temporary things. And tonight, as the team just plays this song over us, I just want us to recalibrate our hearts tonight. Say yes again. And hey, you may think that we do a lot of invitations here at this church that we get you to say yes if you want to for a lot of things like being obedient to the Lord but I tell you what we're going to do it every time every time because church isn't a spectator sport it has to cost you something it has to cost you something but the best news is, is that it is totally worth anything we could ever give. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm just ready to say yes all over again. I am ready to say, God, make me a yielded vessel. Use me for your glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.